Okay, top four questions from last week that you sent in to ask at TheMeetingHouse.com or to me personally, jimmy.rushton at TheMeetingHouse.com. Keep those coming. Top four questions. What's the actual point of the animals? Weren't bulls and cattle actually expensive in that agrarian culture? Why does God seem to adopt ancient worship practices for himself? And what's the significance of Mary and Joseph offering birds after Jesus uh, was born and they present him at the temple. Okay, we're gonna do a quick like fighter jet flyby. You ready? You ready? Yes, okay, the encouragement of Leviticus for us all. What's the actual point of the animals? Okay, so the animals themselves that are listed in these Levite commands are a means to an end. So the animals themselves don't actually hold any uh, significance. Like it's not like a, a sheep or a bull or a goat or a bird represents something. They're all part of the created cosmos of the living God, but they represent uh, symbols of their own currency. And so when you see, whether in Leviticus or Exodus or continuing on through the rest of the old covenant and into the new, when you see these symbols via animals, that's all they are. They are symbols, they are based on the currency of an agrarian agricultural uh, culture at the time. But what they represent is a higher spiritual reality. Question number two, aren't bulls and cattle quite expensive? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you picked that up. So that's a bit of a special circumstance, which we'll see in the text a little bit later today. Um, the bull in particular was a symbol in both the Canaanite religion and the Egyptian sort of pantheon of gods. Uh, the bull was a symbol of power, of sexual prowess, and also the conquering of a land. And it's interesting that God takes that symbol and says, yeah, let's kill it doesn't belong here. It doesn't belong here. We are all mutually uh, collaborating, cohabitating together. You all are the priesthood, a nation of priests that I'm setting apart for myself. Now, uh, invariably, as you read through Exodus, I mean, they're coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans and then out of Exodus and then later Babylon. Likely, there were some wealthier families that were a part of this nation living in the wilderness, trying to find a new way or a new understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be human-loving and following God. And so God uh, insists that those things are offered up, but he also makes accommodation in particular for, um, for bulls and for cattle. In Exodus and in the first part of Leviticus in chapter five, I believe it is, we read that God says, if you don't have it as part of your flock, the flock that's under your care that you own, go out into the herd and see if you can find one. And if not, whatever you have, according to uh, these offering rites, whatever you have will do. So they were expensive animals. They weren't a regular offering. They were like a bit of a special instance, but God also accommodates what they have in their culture at the time. If one can't afford it, take from the herd out in the desert or offer something else. You still with me? Still with me? Okay, why does God seem to adopt ancient um, pagan practices for himself? I think this is the beauty of God's grace that we're seeing on the religious landscape for the first time ever. This God who is one, this God who is one, there's only one, and this God who is one creates the world out of joy, speaks to it, and then lives into it. And there's only one. There's no room for other gods. There's only one because this one God created and breathed the world into existence via love, joy, and 
mercy. And so as God accommodates sort of these old practices, he's taking them on a journey. My wife and I have two uh, kids. They're both girls. And when they were little, both of our girls, and I hope this is a helpful illustration, both of our girls loved to draw and paint. And so there would be times when they would draw and paint where they would be like, what is this? And I'd be like, I have no idea. It's got like one ear and nine legs, a demon. I'm not sure. Um, And my, my oldest daughter would be like, it's a bunny. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, I see what you're getting at here. Now, would it make sense for me as a father who created her and loves her deeply, would it make sense for me as a father to be, ah, away from me, this is a stupid drawing, it makes no sense, come back when you've got it like fully anatomically correct? No, of course not. Of course not, we journey with our children, towards something, towards the fullness of this image. And so eventually, as I'm sitting with Caitlin or Ella, I'm like, why don't we just put like one more ear on this bunny and maybe one less leg as opposed to nine. And eventually she comes, they would come into the fullness of the picture. I think this is what God is doing through these ancient pagan rites. He's using and accommodating their experience of the gods to take them towards one true God through love, through grace, through um, a time of understanding and suffering and wilderness, but that God is accommodating. He's not just uh, having them quit cold turkey. He's working with their understanding and the nations that they've come from to take them towards something that will be in the future. Still with me? Still with me? Okay, what's the significance of Mary and Joseph offering birds? Well, this is a purification ritual, which we'll get to next week in part three of our series. Um, A woman who had a child was considered ceremonially unclean. And so she had to go through a purification rite that actually was meant to be like a lamb or a goat. Um, Or if she couldn't afford it, she brought birds. So like, can you catch a, what's easier to catch, a goat or a lamb or a bird? Probably a bird, like a pigeon. So, and it was also like the poorest sense of currency in this economy. Think of that image in Luke chapter two, Mary and Joseph with Jesus, like in the arms of Mary, are offering a poor person's offering. Here, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the great high priest who will stand at the throne, who will stand at the door of grace and invite people in, uh, ending the sacrifice itself, and yet still God accommodates These are poor people, and God is still like, bring what you have and wait till you see what I have for you. Bring what you have and wait till you see what I have for you. God has come into the world in Jesus through Emmanuel, God with us, to save it, to save it and redeem it through his mercy and grace. Okay, are you ready to jump in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, turn to Leviticus chapter 8, all of our favorite passage in the Bible, Leviticus chapter 8, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then go all the way to the number 8, and we're going to read through um, 13 verses. I will also invite us to have a sympathetic reading and understanding of the text. Do you remember that from last week? So what a sympathetic reading and understanding of the text is to, to remind ourselves This is not written for Oakvillians or Ontarians or Torontonians or Hamiltonians or North Carolinians uh, living in the 21st century. This is written in an ancient context at the turn of the Bronze Age to an agrarian culture that are trying to navigate what are the gods like and do they hate us? Are the gods into killing or loving? Are the gods with us or over and away and up and above us and we just need to appease them in whatever way we can? We need to engage a sympathetic reading so that we first understand who who are these people that this is written to? What is their story? What would have been their hearing and experience of understanding? And then what can God mine out of the text for us today? 
So asking God, help me to understand these ancient hearers' experience. God, help me to receive what it is that you want me to receive today, and then help me to respond how I'm supposed to. So God, we pray that you would do that in our midst, in our gathered space here and across all of our sites. Help us to own what is ours to receive and learn. May your words be in our ears. May your mission be on our hands and may your movement be in our feet and help us to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, together we all said, amen. Okay, Leviticus 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron and his sons along with their sacred garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams and the basket of bread made without yeast. Ta-da! And call the entire community of Israel together to the entrance of the tabernacle. Whoa, 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 that should arrest us right there. Call the entire nation of these people who have been wandering in the desert, call them to the foot of the tabernacle that they have just put together. Call the entire nation to the foot of the tabernacle. So Moses followed Yahweh's instructions, God's, the Lord's instructions, and the whole community assembled at the tabernacle entrance at the foot of this compound. Moses announced to them, this is what the Lord has commanded us to do. And then he presented Aaron and his sons, of which there were four, four sons, and he washed them with water. And what is the symbol of being cleansed with water? It's not because they were just stinky out in the desert. It's a ceremonial cleansing. It's purifying them for what is about to happen. So they're purified, washed with water in preparation for what is about to happen. He presented Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. He put the official tunic on Aaron and tied the sash around his waist. He dressed him in the robe, placed the ephod on him, and attached the ephod securely with its decorative sash. And then Moses placed the chest piece on Aaron and put the, the Urim and the Thum inside it, which we've all worn today, I'm sure. He placed the turban on Aaron's head and he attached the gold medallion, the badge of holiness to the front of the turban, just as the Lord had commanded him. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, making them holy, consecrated, set apart, living in the divine presence. He sprinkled the oil on the altar seven Times, remember that, seven times, anointing it, cleansing it, and all its utensils, as well as the wash basin and its stand, making them holy. And then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, anointing him and making him holy for his work. And next, Moses presented Aaron's sons. There are four of them. He clothed them in their tunics, tied their sashes around them, and put their special head coverings on them just as the Lord had commanded them. This is a fascinating text and a massive right turn of grace and inclusion that God is making with his covenant people. And so there's a couple things that are happening here. God is setting up a party, and before that, he's ordaining priests. Party and priest. Party and priest and priest. Up until now, the first five, uh, seven chapters, sorry, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of Leviticus, we're getting the, the, in Exodus, we've had, here's how the temple will be set up, and God will live among you, live among you. His presence, his glory will be manifest in 
through, with, there, among you. Not up in the mountain, down here with you. Here's how to build the temple and the compound and to set up the altar. And in the beginning of Leviticus, he gives all of the, the requirements that the people will give to make offering atonement for, cleansing for, purification for their sin, as well as thanksgiving offerings. Here is the, the symbols based on your currency of how you will engage with the divine and how the divine will engage with you. And now he's setting apart priests, people who will broker the relationship between God and humanity. Because remember, the people are fearful. They say to Moses, that God is scary. We don't know how the gods act. Like, can there be somebody that can like stand in the gap between us, like a high priest? And God accommodates that and says, yes, okay, I will choose Aaron and his sons. And there are four of them. Now, quick like Bible trivia, what, who is Aaron? What did Aaron just do a few chapters before? made the golden calf, the biggest like pockmark in religious history for them at the time. He, he, he fashions this symbol of, of power and promise based on Egyptian gods and fails the whole nation. What does God say? I will strike you down and kill your whole family. No, not at all. In fact, God accommodates, uses his messiness, his family's messiness, his son's messiness, his own messiness and brokenness to establish him as a priest. This is amazing, the heart mercy of divine love here in an ancient, ancient culture. Still, we see the heartbeat of God saying, I still wanna use you. I'm, I'm choosing Aaron and his sons. So alongside Moses, Aaron is, is anointed with oil. So they're setting up the priesthood, Aaron and his sons. Aaron is like the biggest deal. And what is the first thing that we read in the text? They get dressed up. Their fashion is legit. God dresses them like the gods, literally dresses them like the gods at the time. So he gives them these symbols of like blue and purple and a turban and a chest piece, a breast piece, a, a, a sign on their head that says um, uh, people of the way of Yahweh or one who follows, who listens to Yahweh, one who listens to God, who obeys his commands and lives in it. They, they wear a tunic, they wear a sash, they have ephods, urim and thummim, which were these like symbols of the presence and anointing of God. And then the sons get dressed up in a similar, but not the same fashion. God is clearly demarcating them as those that will represent God to the nation that is gathered around the temple compound. Amazing, amazing. This is the first instance in the biblical text that we also see that God is like, loves beauty, like God, it's, it's the, the, the clothing is there for clothing's sake. They, they show that it's like a marker of the divine, but it's also just these are beautiful elements out of the creative handiwork of God and humankind. And God is like, I like this. Like, you, you don't need to just wear like tunics and, and shawls and like uh, potato sacks. But it also doesn't give you permission to like hoard this stuff while everybody else does wear potato sacks. Does that make sense? So God is meeting them where they're at, but also setting them apart, Aaron and his sons. Beautiful, beautiful. So then the sons are instructed for seven days. Aaron uh, is dressed up as are his sons. And then um, the, the, the nation is called forward and they have a party. But before that happens, there's seven days of preparation of consecration of the ordination process. Ordination just means being the process through which you are set apart towards holiness. Now in our context, we think about holiness of like, you must be perfect. It's actually not a, an Old Testament definition of what holiness looks like. Holiness is one who dwells, who lives in the divine presence. 
One who has like the ethos of God on him or her. One who has been in the presence of the divine. And so that's what these priests are meant to be and to look like. And it takes a bit. There's seven days of, of creation that happen in these priests. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? There's these seven days of creation, of process, of plan, of preparation that God uh, instills in them. They wait at the temple, they make their offerings, and at the end of these seven days, Moses and Aaron go into the temple for the first time, for the first time. They go into the temple and they give their offering and then they come back outside of the curtain and they meet with the people and they bless the people, likely the blessing out of number six. six. May the Lord be gracious to you, make his uh, face turn towards you and give you his peace. This is is likely the blessing that they are giving to the people. And then the people offer their sacrifices, which they've been preparing for through the first seven chapters. See that number again? Seven chapters of Leviticus. And then the craziest thing happens. If you've read the story, do you remember what happens? The glory of the Lord, literally the fire lightning bolt of the Lord, shoots out from the door and consumes their offering. The manifest glory of the presence of the divine comes out in a physical form and consumes, burns up, cooks their offering. It's the first biblical barbecue, like church picnic that we see in scripture. And the people uh, scream out and fall on their faces. Now, at a a first glance reading, we might think, okay, so they're freaked out. No, actually, the Hebrew word is that they um, are overcome with joy. So they are finally experiencing the manifest presence of this God who creates out of joy and who lives with the people and will show himself to the people. He is pleased with their offering and they are pleased with his. Everything is falling in order. Seven days of prep for this creation and now culminating in the presence of God. And then do you remember, uh, this would, as an ancient reader, you would be hearkened back to um, Genesis one and two, where, where on day eight, do you remember what happens? It's your work to do now, that God rests on day seven. They enjoy like just being in God's creation and being part of God's creation. And then on day eight, it's their work to now do. It's time to get to work, Adam and Eve, the first humans. Care for the world and subdue it, develop it, create. And it's the same message here for Aaron and his sons. The sons of Aaron, there are four, are meant to stay, to stay for another seven days at the foot of the doorway of the temple and prepare, 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 so that the people will see that not only does God just have a great high priest now in Aaron and his partner Moses, but also there's a lineage, there's a succession plan in these uh, sons of Aaron's that will also be clothed in these holy garments and will prepare. So there's a lot of public spectacle happening to signal a greater and higher spiritual reality that God is never leaving, never leaving, staying with these people. And these sons of Aaron are given instruction. Here's what it is. Stay, eat, and pray. Some of us have that like live edge billboard above our fridge. Stay, eat and pray. Stay there. Stay there. Let the people see you. I'm doing something in and through you as well, just like I did with your father and your uncle. Stay there. Eat. Eat these offerings, because these aren't just like random signals. It's something for you to enjoy. Eat the offerings and prepare. Prepare yourself for God is doing something in and through you, is clothing a wholly new nation, is creating something brand new in and among you. 
Amazing. These seven days of creation, of recreation, happen with great joy. There's a new priesthood that's been created and there's work to do. They've heard about this for years and decades and decades and decades, wandering in the desert. They have their work to do. They've been given the details of how to build the temple, to bring offerings. They've had this party. They've experienced the physical presence of the living God among them. And now their priests are clear with their marching orders. They've been set apart to live in the presence of the divine ones who are holy. This is all amazing. Yay, what a party. And then we read just brutal tragedy in chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals of fire in their incense burners and sprinkled incense over them. And this way, they disobeyed. They did what was profane to the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire, different than what the Lord had commanded over 19 times. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up and they died there before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near to me. I will display my glory before all people. And Aaron was silent. What? So this is where it's important to have a sympathetic reading and understanding of this ancient context. Admittedly, for me, when I first studied this text and read it over again over the last few weeks, and certainly for you in your first hearing, or if you've read it before, you're like, so God just kills the sons? They lose their lives in the presence of the fire of God, the manifest presence. What once was a signal of like joy and offering is now a signal of death. And that's understandable. It is a problematic text. From an ancient perspective, let me help us understand what else is going on. From an ancient perspective, as Israelites wandering wandering for decades and decades, having almost 20 times these instructions remanded and reminded for you, and then knowing that you as Aaron's sons are set apart as the priesthood, having weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to this, and then seven days, seven days to do the work, to stay and eat and pray. And then on day eight, just a few sentences later, these sons of Aaron, which is signaling the devastating nature and cyclical pattern of sin and separation that gets in the way, these boys take a foreign incense holder that they're not supposed to touch or bring in, a foreign incense uh, like smoke that they put in this thing, and then they storm right into the holy place through the curtain, and they blaspheme, they disobey. In an ancient hearing, you likely would not think, so God, just like wipe them out. You'd think, we're all going to get wiped out. Are you kidding me? They did what? This is akin to like in a wedding ceremony for us today, somebody like standing up from the back in the middle of the ceremony, running forward, punching out the priest, pushing over the bride and groom, and setting fire to the front of the church. This is a crazy act of rebellion. Uh, And the interesting thing is the very next thing after the section, what does God say and do and command? Does he say, I'm done with it? Aaron and his sons, done. First the golden calf, and now this, I'm wiping out the human race. No, Aaron is silent, and then Yahweh says, through Moses, new rule, no drinking at the temple. Don't get drunk at the temple. Now, it doesn't state that Aaron's sons, two of them, 
There are two left, and there are two that have, uh, have been consumed. They die as a result of being uh, consumed by the fire of God. It doesn't say that they were drunk, but I think the text does suggest that. So think about the, the utter disobedience and devastation of the effect of sin that has happened here. These priests who are set apart, meant to live in the divine presence of God, have blasphemed the name of God, have done anything in their power to do the opposite, have fast-tracked what they think is theirs to own, and they go screaming into the holy place, and God's fire, his holiness, consumes them, and they die. If you were an ancient hearer, you would think, what? How could they do this? Why is this happening again? What is wrong with us as a nation, and where do we go from here? Everything is surely lost. These are the reminders in an ancient tradition, an ancient society of people who are trying to understand God, of life and death, but then God answers with a bit of an ellipsis, a dot, 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 and life again. Decreation, creation, and resurrection. Incredible. That the first thing that God does not say is, I'm done with you all. Instead, he says, okay, I've got to put in some more parameters because I'm intent on living with you and you with each other, of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. There is the tragedy of sin and separation, which is devastating. It affects our families and our lives, but there's an end in sight. God makes it clear that he's not done. It's not over. That these rituals and symbols are not the ends in themselves. They are a means to an end. That the gap is still closing, even through devastation of blasphemy and disobedience. God is still using this holy nation in and through its brokenness and messiness. And I would suggest that in chapters 8 to 10, we're starting to see the illusions of Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, Messiah, in the text. Do you remember when Aaron was anointed with oil I mentioned earlier? The, the word for anointing literally means that. It's the first time we see it in the text. It's the first time that we see in the biblical text oil being used as a blessing, a symbol of anointing and blessing for God, literally Mashiach. And Aaron is this great high priest, the anointed one, who will save the people from their sins. I want us to land um, in Hebrews chapter 4, which is intentional. These texts are linked. So Hebrews chapter 4, we'll put it on the screen and just kind of scream through it really, really quick. Closing the gap. So then, so then, despite everything that we've experienced, and Hebrews is like the great lineage of faith, and they're a Jewish tradition. Where have we come from? Where are we now? And where is God taking us through Jesus, our great high priest? So then, Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne room of grace, or the throne of our gracious God. Amazing. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. What is the end goal here? Is it to continue to prop up religious symbolism for religious symbolism's sake? No, Jesus stands in the gap. The fullness of God in human form is our great high priest. 
and grace is the door. Jesus is our great high priest and, and grace is the door through which we enter into the presence of God. So, is there something that we need to bring to and sacrifice, kill on the altar to atone for the things that we've done wrong or the cumulative effect of our family or our personal sin? No, it's already settled permanently in the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in Jesus and he who stands as our high priest, as the person who helps to usher in, in its fullness, us into the divine presence. Now, is there anything for us to do? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. It's literally to live in the anointing that hears, does, and moves in step with Jesus. One of the signals that um, Moses uh, gives to Aaron and his sons is he dips his fingers in the blood of the sacrificed um, uh, animal, and he, he dabs their right earlobe, their right thumb, and their right big toe. Random at first glance, but powerful when you understand the meaning. The right ear, one who hears the commands of God. Their right thumb, one who does, does the, the, the will of God, the teachings, holds true and does something with it. And then the right toe, one who acts, who moves the mission of God forward. And so that's our call. That's where we've been anointed through the grace and mercy of Jesus, our high priest, to live in the anointing as the priesthood of all believers, ones who hear, do, and move in step with Jesus, boldly approaching the throne of grace, receiving the mercy of divine love, mirroring God to the world and his holiness in our homes, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our friendships with our enemies mirroring what God looks like, being the priesthood of all believers living in God's will and way in and through our brokenness. Now I know what you're thinking. Maybe there's an appetite that you fed in your life where you're like, I just don't think because of this thing that God sees me or loves me or gets me. Brother or sister, if you're thinking that, know that Jesus stands at the door and says, grace, grace, my love washes over that. My sacrifice atones for it. Come through into grace. Rest in me, the author of Hebrews says. Maybe there's a pattern in your family where you're like, I just feel like I don't hear God or don't understand God or I think God is just like continuing to punish us or something's up. May you hear that it's not true. God's grace is over, in, and through you. Certainly, he wants to move you in step with who he is, his heart for you and for the world. But the penalty of sin is accounted for. You only need to move in step with the grace of God and the love of Jesus, his divine mercy. Or maybe for us as a church, we've just been rattled with priests who fail. myself included, yourself included. Human priests will only get us so far, but thank God for the provision of the divine through our great high priest Jesus who stands in the gap and covers us 
with his grace in and through our brokenness and messiness. And this is the message of Leviticus 8 to 10 and 11 and 12 up through to to chapter 16, that God still leans in. God still leans in. And so brothers and sisters, wherever you find yourself, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you to us and give you his peace. And together we all said in Jesus' name, amen.